Yes, it's working. Yes, it is working. Good. A number of years ago, uh, back when there was such a thing as a brick and mortar Christian bookstore, um, I started a little group where we would meet once, I guess, I don't know if it was, I, I don't think it was, maybe it was once a week, I don't remember how often we met, but uh, I would read a, a Christian book uh, out loud to whoever showed up. And uh, one of the books that we read was Pilgrim's Progress, and uh, John Bunyan became uh, really a hero uh, in, my, in my eyes. And I just wanted to read you a little bit about him in case you don't know anything about him. Uh, John Bunyan was born in 1628 in the heart of England, a mile south of Bedford. His family was so poor that when his father died, John was left with only one shilling and his tinker's anvil. The boy had little formal education, however, he learned to read. In youth, he boasted a mouth so profane it shocked even wicked men. John turned 16 in 1644 at the height of the Civil War and joined the army. While on duty, he was drawn out to take part in a siege. Another soldier asked to take his place. As he stood sentinel, he was shot in the head with a musket bullet and died. John came to see this as proof God had spared his life for a great work. Returning home, John married. He was 20 years old. His wife was as poor as he. Between them, they did not have a dish or a spoon. Now that, that just gives a whole new meaning to poverty, doesn't it? Not a dish or a spoon between the two of them. Her godly father had furnished her with two Christian books, books which John read with an increasingly troubled conscience. And one Sunday, he heard a voice. Will you leave your sins and go to heaven? Or have your sins and go to hell? His distress was acute. He felt that he had sinned so gravely that he was beyond forgiveness. Nonetheless, he struggled to find peace with God by obeying scriptural commands. Outwardly, he reformed and put off swearing and improper sports. Inwardly, he still longed to participate. He read the Bible. Although without peace, he thought God must be pleased with him. And one day, he overheard four women speaking of their conversion experience, and he realized he lacked something. Leaving the Church of England, he joined their fellowship. Still, he lacked peace. Only after reading Luther's commentary on Galatians did he realize he could be justified by faith alone. His inner struggles were not over, but he found relief. Bunyan felt compelled to tell others of faith in Christ. He became a field preacher. Go out into a field and people would gather around him and he'd preach. So effective were his words, people would arrive at dawn to hear him preach at noon. Open air preaching was illegal. Officials feared that demagogues would incite revolution. For this reason, John was careful never to side with any political faction in his teachings. All the same, he was in danger. 
warned that he was to be arrested if he held church at a friend's house. He went anyway, determined to set an example of boldness. If he fled, weaker brethren would see it and run also. And so he was seized. Without a hearing or witnesses, the judge sentenced John to three months in prison. Bedford's prison conditions were not the worst in England, yet they were a genuine hardship. There was little light and no, no bathing facilities. The place stank of unwashed bodies. Prison fever, or typhus, killed many prisoners. The cells were overcrowded, and John's ration was one quarter loaf of bread a day. Worst of all, he was separated from his family. His first wife had died and he had remarried. He was not home to care for his children, including his blind daughter, Mary, whom he loved dearly. To support them, Bunyan made thousands of long tagged shoelaces, which he sold. Church members also helped the Bunyans. At the end of three months, John was offered freedom on condition he would no longer preach. Again, he refused. The months turned to years. All in all, he spent 12 years in prison. Fortunately, a sympathetic jailer let John secretly slip off to meetings. He knew John would always return. Once he even let John go to London but when his job was threatened, he forbade him to so much as peek out of the jail door anymore. For political reasons, Charles II released a number of prisoners. Bunyan was not among them. He was told he would have to apply for a pardon, and he refused. To do so would be to admit he had done something wrong. Elizabeth, his wife, pleaded for his release, but sympathetic court officers said John could go free only if he complied with the authorities. So John remained in prison. He was cheerful, believing he suffered for Christ. He had true freedom, he said. In prison, he could read the Bible, preach, and sing hymns with no one to stop him. He was also allowed to write. While imprisoned, he completed many of his 60 books, including the best known, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners and The Pilgrim's Progress. Bunyan's first book, Some Gospel Truths Opened According to the Scriptures, had attacked Quaker beliefs. Ironically, it was the Quakers who freed him told by the king to prepare a list of names for pardon, they included Bunyan's name among their members. Released, Bunyan immediately returned to preaching. And by now the authorities realized he was concerned only with the kingdom of God. They jailed him again for six months in 1675, but otherwise he remained free until he died at 60 years of age, having written The Pilgrim's Progress the world's most widely circulated book next to the Bible. We've been looking at 1 Peter chapter 4 over the last two weeks in the topic of suffering and suffering well as a believer. In 1 Corinthians 10, uh, verse 31, we read this. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. 
if we can eat and drink to the glory of God, I think it goes without saying that we should be able to suffer for the glory of God. I think that's uh, especially applicable when it comes to suffering wrongly as a believer. And I suspect that it's particularly difficult for American Christians to suffer well because we've been taught by our culture that we have rights and we don't deserve to be the victims of some sort of religious hate speech. That's where many are tempted to run when mistreated. We think of, we think of litigation rather than how to accept suffering for the glory of God. And I'd, I'd like to make one more observation we don't often think about very much. When we think of, of Christian suffering, we tend to forget that everybody suffers. Christians, unsaved, everybody. Everybody on the planet suffers all the time. Why? Well, because of Adam's sin, because we live in a fallen world. Uh, it, it was the promise of God that we would suffer after sin. The entire universe suffers because of sin. And it doesn't matter. Rich, poor, male, female, adults, children, all suffer from something as a direct result of the sin of Adam. And this is yet another reason why we in particular should not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon us to test us as though something strange were happening to us. I mean, we more than than the than unbelievers understand suffering is just a reality as part of the, the fallen world that we live in so when when we suffer well it's just it's not necessarily uh persecution it's just a human thing we all suffer sin brought the curse and that's ultimately why anyone or better yet why everyone suffers so we, especially, we expect life to be difficult. We should be surprised that we're ever surprised that, at that. How we handle difficulty is completely counterintuitive. As Christians, we, when we handle suffering and abuse and hardship and difficulty and persecution well, it is totally countercultural. Nobody thinks this way except us. And oftentimes we don't think this way. We rejoice in suffering when we suffer as believers, knowing we have fellowship with the Lord Jesus in our suffering. But Peter reminds us not to confuse suffering for Christ with suffering as a knucklehead. And I, was, I was hoping I would get a translation for that word. I'm wondering what the Spanish version of knucklehead is. If somebody could tell me that later, I would appreciate it. I mean, if you're in jail because you knocked off a 7-Eleven in order to support your drug habit, uh, don't try to transform that into some kind of suffering for Jesus event. Uh, you get zero suffering points for that. And you also get zero glory points for that. That's just, you're just being a knucklehead. But if we're hated because we belong to Jesus, because we preach the gospel, because we believe the Bible, because we preach on street corners, because we come, become field preachers, 
Because we will not conform to the ways and the thinking of the rebellious world around us, then, then it's time to rejoice. We can rejoice in that suffering because the scriptures tell us that it's the spirit of God that rests upon us when that takes place. And who knows, you know, maybe one of us will write the next Pilgrim's Progress from prison somewhere. You never know. Now look with me at 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. Okay. Verse 16. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So according to what Peter has said here, not only should we not be ashamed if we suffer for the name of Christ, but we can glorify God in such suffering by rejoicing in it. When we rejoice as we are instructed to do, in the scriptures, in our suffering for the Lord, that brings glory to God. Do you want to glorify God with your life? This is one way it's done. Now, I'm, I'm hoping that not many of us have spent any time in jail in recent years for any reason, but if you have to go to jail for being a Christian, handle that well, God gets the glory. Because everybody knows that people don't normally handle that well. It's got to be a God thing. That's, this, is, this is not normal. This is otherworldly. This is supernatural, literally supernatural. Listen to uh, what the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, and who would that be? That, that cloud of witnesses, who are they? They're all the saints that are listed in chapter 11. You know, by faith, Noah, by faith, Moses, and by faith, Abraham, and, and the list is long. So since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross and you see the juxtaposition of those words joy and endurance for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God so back in first Peter he says if we suffer as a Christian, we shouldn't be ashamed. Jesus hated the shame and endured the cross because of the joy that was set before him. There's no shame in being hated for Christ's sake. On the contrary, there's joy in it, and it's most certainly contrary to everything else that the world teaches us. We're, we're to live such otherworldly lives that we put on display the glory of God. So rejoicing and suffering is a profound way to do that. Now look at verse 17, 1 Peter 4, 17. 
he goes on. He says, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. Now, we just stop right there in the middle of the verse. What do you mean? Judgment for the household of God. Well, that, that is what it says. So, so what is he talking about? Um, I, I thought that there was no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I mean, that's true, right? Because it also says that in the text. So, so are we reading this wrong? What does he mean by that? Well, no, we're not reading it wrong. I, I think Paul lends an explanation to us of what Peter means here. In 2 Timothy 4, verses 6 through 8, speaking of his own life, Paul says, I'm ready, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the, the what? The Lord, the what? The righteous judge will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. There's, when we hear the word judge, I, I don't know about you, but when I hear the word judge, I think of a guy with a gavel in uh, a seat that's up, you know, up above everybody else and lawyers and that. Well, that's not the judging that's going on. This is the Olympics. These are the spiritual Olympics, and the judge of the Olympics is Jesus himself, and he's the one who's holding up the scorecards, and they all say 10. Because he enables us, by his grace, to run the race well, to finish, to fight well. And so he, he gives to us what he requires of us. He grants us grace in order that we might run well, in order that we might glorify him. This is not something that we do in the flesh or, or in our own strength. And when we, when we finish the race, and when, does, when is Paul finishing his race? Well, he says he's ready to die. He's ready to go home. The race is almost over. And when he finishes the race, the Lord Jesus himself, his judge, will give him the crown of righteousness, just like the Olympic uh, champions. They would put this little wreath, this little tiny wreath on their head made out of olive leaves or something like that. It wasn't the, it wasn't the crown that was the issue. It was that they were just the champion, that they, they get this. And as far as we're concerned, everybody gets that crown, that crown of righteousness. He supplies the, the grace for us to run well, and that's the judgment that begins with the people of God, as opposed to the other judgment for everybody else. Look again at verse 17. For it's time for judgment to begin at the household of God, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? What, what does he mean by, by that phrase, if the righteous is scarcely saved? The household of God is scarcely saved. Does that mean that we're barely saved by the skin of our teeth? That we, that we all get inside the pearly gates just seconds before they close and lock them? And we, we're, you know, we're on the outside looking in? Does it mean that Jesus' blood just barely turned away the wrath of God and he, and he almost didn't pull it off? 
that Jesus somehow persuaded God to forgive us even when he didn't really want to? What does it mean when he says if the, that the righteous is scarcely saved? Well, if it doesn't mean any of those things, what does it mean? I think it means this. How many people were saved from the flood? Eight. How many weren't saved from the flood? How many people escaped from Sodom? How many people didn't escape? Uh, how many people survived the destruction of Jericho? How many didn't? How many people made it through the wilderness? How many didn't? How many travel the narrow way that leads to life? One, the one word, what? Few. And how many don't? Most. I think that's what he's talking about. If the relatively few righteous are saved from the wrath to come, how many aren't? And we should stop right there and drive that home for just a minute. Not everybody's going. In fact, relatively few will be saved. And so, should there be someone here that does not know the Lord Jesus, take that to heart. Eight people were on the ark. Everybody else died. Everybody else in the world died, including all their animals. God is under no compulsion to save anyone. We're saved by, what does Ephesians say? We're saved by what? Grace. What does that mean? It means he just decided to do it. You, you can't demand grace. Nobody has a right to grace or mercy. It's God's prerogative to show grace and mercy to whom he will. You remember who's the potter and who's the clay? Well, we're not the potter. And he can do with the clay whatever he wants. Take note if you do not know the Lord because he's ready to save if you're ready to repent. Then he goes on in verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will. You mean it's God's will that we suffer? It, it, doesn't it say that in your Bible? That, you know, if, let those who suffer according to God's will. Did John Bunyan suffer in the Bedford prison for 12 years contrary to God's will? No. In fact, you know, he reminds me of Joseph. His brother sell him into slavery. He's thrown into prison for why, you know? Well, apparently John Bunyan was thrown into prison in order to write books. And so he could read the Bible and sing hymns and nobody could bother him. And he was free in prison and he was happy and he rejoiced in his suffering. And he wrote a book 
that is second only to the Bible. I've, I've heard pastors say that if they were stranded on a deserted island and they could only take two books with them to that deserted island, what would it be? Bible, yeah, that's, that's a given. Pilgrim's Progress, that's the other one. Written from prison in that smelly, stinky place for the glory of God. So don't complain about your suffering. Don't think this is some sort of punishment from God that Jesus forgot to endure in your place. No, it says here that we can entrust our souls to a faithful creator. The Lord Jesus is faithful to care for his own, even in our suffering. While doing good, we can trust him with our very souls. This is the very nature of saving faith, to trust him regardless, no matter what. And I'll be the first one to admit this is easy preaching. I mean, I could, I could stand here and preach this for hours and hours and hours, as you know. But that's hard living. Let's pray that the Lord would continue to grant us the grace in whatever circumstance it is his will to bring into our lives. And one final word, don't forget that the servant is not above his master. If the master suffered for you and me, then we shouldn't be surprised if we have to suffer for him. Amen. Father, thank you for, thank you for these encouraging words from your word from our brother Peter. And we, we know a little bit about how our brothers and sisters over the centuries have suffered. We have, we have observed that from afar. We've, written, we've read about it in books. We've heard about it in missionary newsletters. But most of us have never suffered to any serious degree. And it may be that the day is not far off when that is going to change. And it may be that these words are here for us as a preparatory, <laughs> a preparatory word to help us to not be surprised when it happens to us. Thank you, Lord, for suffering for us. And we thank you for the glory to come. We pray in Jesus' name.